catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Today, we're actually coming to you from Gemma's kitchen, where she does all her awesome cooking, as you've seen in the Keepers. <laughs> but today, we're actually going to be covering the timeline, Gemma. Hi, everybody. Thank you. Probably you're going to get a good listen in many ways. We are going to, this evening, talk about the history of Joseph Maskell. And we're going to bring you up to speed on everything that happened the week before Sister Kathy disappeared, because there's a lot there and there's a lot that you've asked questions about. So why don't we go ahead and jump into Father Maskell's timeline? Okay. We know that he was born on April 13th, 1939. He was raised by his mom and dad in Northeast Baltimore. Yes. He has a half brother named Tommy. His mother was Helen Jenkins. And his father was Joseph Francis Maskell, so he must have been named after his father. Correct. If we pause there for a minute, his brother was his half-brother, and I believe his name was Thomas Joseph. I guess they had the same dad, and his brother Thomas was a Baltimore City police officer in the, I believe it was in the northwest area of Baltimore, and that probably is significant. We also know that when Maskell was a child, his mom used to make little priest vestments. And if you're not Catholic, vestments are the costumes, the outfits that priests wear when they're saying mass or doing a baptism. So she made miniature ones for him, and he had mass in the backyard, and she would buy Necco wafers. Those, it's a roll of candy in different colors and would let him use the white ones for communion hosts. And I want to know how many, here's something you can research for me. How many rolls of Necco wafers do you have to buy before you can get a dozen white ones? Just to add, we do know that Father Maskell has a sister. Her name, we don't want to put out there. I did invite her by a letter to do a podcast, but needless to say, she does not want to be bothered. So if you're out there doing your own research, please do not reach out to his sister. She's not responsible for what he did. 
and she's elderly, and we need to respect her privacy because this is, as far as we know, was not her. Yeah, we're just going to ask you to back off from Maskell's sister. So in 1953, we have that he entered St. Is it St. Charles Seminary? Correct. But he was only there for one week because he left because he was homesick. He was 14 at that time. He graduated from Calvert Hall College between 1956 and 1957. In 1957, he entered St. Mary's Seminary. I want to jump in there. Some of you have sent us pictures from the Calvert Hall yearbook with his picture for the year he graduated. And I've learned through another friend that several of the residents from the Carriage House Apartments who were living there at the same time Sister Kathy was and Billy lived across the hall were actually graduates of Calvert Hall in the same time frame as Joseph Maskell. Now, we don't know if they knew that each other, but it's just an interesting side note. So in 1965, we know from Maskell's tombstone that he was ordained. When Maskell was a seminarian, he attended as a counselor a summer camp, a Catholic summer camp in Western Maryland. I'm not sure of the name of it. It might have been St. Martin's, but I'm not positive. And he and another seminarian who later was also ordained, William Sims, who is also on the bishop's accountability list as an abuser priest, They were both there as counselors and abused boys who were younger than they were at the camp. Now, interestingly enough, our director, Ryan White, his grandfather, owned that camp. And one of his aunts also worked at that camp. So she befriended one of the boys who had been abused by Sims and Maskell, So there was already a family connection when Ryan found out about Sister Kathy's murder and the abuse that surrounded it. So I think there are no no coincidences, but his aunt has kept in touch with this man and they've been friends. And this gentleman did make himself public and was part of the keepers, but chose not to... um, be actually in the series, and he also is dealing with this, with the issues that surround clergy abuse. So it looks like his first parish assignment after he was ordained was the Sacred Heart of Mary, and that was in 65 to 66? Correct, and there are two of those. This one, I believe, was in the city, and 65 to 66 was the first year that Keo was open. We do not have any reports of abuse by Maskell at that, or at least I'm not aware of any, at that parish. Sister Kathy was at Keogh from the very beginning. The first year Keogh was open, Sister Kathy was there teaching English. I entered the second year it was open. Jerry Koob was there the first year, and he was there as a Jesuit seminarian And he was supposed to be learning how to teach teenagers. And he told me he had no idea how to teach. And so Kathy invited him to come and watch her teach. They had met at a conference before he arrived at Keogh. And so they knew each other. And he said he came in and watched her teach. And she taught 
what is called the Socratic method. And I've talked about this before, but I watched everything she did and I was determined to teach the way she did. And it really works. It's probing your students. It's asking open-ended questions. It's the students doing more talking than the teacher does, which is always better. So in 1966, we know that Father Maskell was the associate pastor at St. Clement Church in, and again, that was in 1966, and I guess he supervised Boy Scouts there. Correct. He was the new pastor, actually was the assistant pastor when he first came there, and Keogh had already opened. Keogh opened in the school year of 65-66. So Kathy was already teaching there. She would not have known Maskell yet. Jerry Koob had met Kathy before at a conference of clergy, and so they knew each other. And Jerry was assigned, because he was a Jesuit seminarian, to teach in a high school for a year because the Jesuits are teaching priests. And he was, he really said he didn't know how to teach. And Kathy said, come in and watch me. And he said he watched her teach. And it was magic, as it was for all of us that knew her as a great teacher. She used the Socratic method, which involves talking, listening your students, probing them. It's more of a dialogue, a conversation. It's confirming what the other person says and then making comments and questions based on that. And I watched everything she did and was determined to teach the same way. So I feel, I really feel like I owe the success of my career to watching Kathy teach. In our ongoing journey, dissecting real life mysteries, I've found a perfect companion in a game that not only captivates, but also lets me step into the shoes of a detective in the glamorous 1920s, June's Journey. As someone who's delved deep into the game, playing through the intriguing scenarios of June Parker, I can personally vouch for its immersive experience. In June's journey, you unravel the mystery of June Parker's sister's murder. Each scene is a visual and intellectual puzzle, with hidden clues scattered across beautifully crafted locations. What I've enjoyed most is the depths of the storyline. Each chapter peels back a layer of this thrilling narrative, revealing danger, mystery, and romance. Besides the allure of solving mysteries, The game lets you design and customize your own luxurious estate island. Building my estate has been a delightful escape, offering a creative break from the intense narratives we tackle on the podcast. For those of you who enjoy the blend of history, mystery, and narrative depth we explore on this podcast, June's Journey offers a chance to live out those elements in a beautifully interactive setting. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android, and join me in this ongoing quest to uncover hidden truths and solve complex mysteries. The first year of students was 65-66. So our friend Chris Santafonte, who was a real estate agent, who was friends with Russell, she was there that year. Jerry was there that year. And Kathy was there that year. The following year, 66-67, Abby and Gemma entered Keogh and got to know Russell and Kathy as our teachers. Jerry was not there. Maskell was not there. So according to Jerry, he and Maskell never met each other. He said they may have, their paths may have crossed, but they never actually worked together or taught together. 
uh, the year after that, which would have been 67, 68, that was my sophomore year. That's when Maskell was moved from his day job at St. Clements to his day job at Keogh. And this is confusing for a lot of people because he still lived in the rectory at St. Clements. So when he left Keogh in the afternoon or whenever he got out of there, he would go back to the rectory and be around the church property in the afternoon and evening. So he was not moved away from kids. It's assumed that he was his day job was moved because he was reported or gossip about him abusing boys, and the church felt, well, if he likes boys, let's put him with girls. We know that was no better. So Maskell was continuing to say Mass and to be the assistant pastor at St. Clement's. The end of that year, the rectory where he lived, which is the creepy old house that you see Charles standing in front of in the series, that was sold to a family in the parish, and they raised their kids in that house for 20 years. Maskell and other priests were moved to the Our Lady of Victory rectory, which was not much farther away from Keogh, maybe even closer to Keogh. So he would leave Our Lady of Victory to go to work at Keogh up until 1975. One thing of importance that I thought was interesting, we learned on another interview, I think it was, that the official archdiocese assignment list actually has Maskell at Keogh between 70 and 75. But we know from all the students that he was there starting in 1967. Correct. Isn't that so odd that they happened to have marked him out from the time when Kathy was right. disappeared and murdered? And she was there that whole time up until the spring of 69 when she and Sister Russell left and moved into the nearby apartments. So we know on November 7th, 1969, that Kathy, Sister Kathy was last seen. Why, why don't we go ahead and start a week before that? Okay. I don't have a lot of information about the full week before that, but I have talked to my dear friend and Keogh survivor, Kathy Hoback, who, as you all know from the series, did confide in Kathy that she had been abused by Maskell. The first report of abuse that was told to Kathy was in December of 68. And that was Kathy. That was the first one that I know about. I have a feeling there may have been more. Kathy and she were friends and Kathy with a K confided in Sister Kathy and then visited her when she moved to the Carriage House Apartments. In the spring that Kathy was at Keogh before she left, that is when Jean had confided in her. That's when, in the series, Jean tells us that Kathy said, go home and enjoy your summer, and I will take care of this. So during that summer, Kathy and Russell leave Keogh, which is a big controversy about why, and we've discussed that, but they were very busy that summer. They were both going to school, taking classes, going to conferences. They were living until they moved into the apartment with Russell's family in the northern part of Baltimore County. And in July, 
of 69, they moved into the carriage house apartments. The week before Kathy disappeared, we know that, or a couple of weeks before, Kathy Hobeck visited her. And Kathy Hobeck told me nothing seemed out of place. It was a nice visit, but she also told me that she had a friend with her who didn't know about the abuse, so that both she and Sister Kathy kept the conversation light because she didn't want her friend to know about her confiding in Sister Kathy. The Wednesday before Kathy disappeared, we know that our real estate friend and my buddy, Chris Constantine Santafonte, went to visit Kathy and Russell at the Carriage House Apartments because Chris was so excited that she was being engaged. And she had graduated that year. I still had a year to go. She had been with the same young man for a while, and Kathy shared her excitement. So Chris went over to share that news with Kathy and Russ. Chris tells me that something was off, that Kathy seemed flat, not her exuberant self. Chris wasn't really sure what it was, if it was health or it was emotional stress. But she said there was definitely something that was not the norm, that she was happy for Chris, but it was not her regular enthusiasm. And that would have been the Wednesday before the Friday Kathy disappeared. Jerry Koob also told me that, and I believe he said it was on Wednesday, he talked to Kathy by phone and they made plans to get together on Saturday, the following Saturday. And Kathy said she had something important to talk to him about. Now, your guess is as good as mine. In my head, I'm thinking maybe she was going to tell him about the abuse and ask for his support or opinion. Maybe she was going to tell him that she was leaving the convent because he had proposed to her two years before that, and she said no. She said We're, we need to both follow her hearts. She had not taken her final vows yet, and he was in the seminary. So he asked before they had moved along to those final commitments, whether or not she would marry him. And she said no at that time. So we don't know what it was that she wanted to talk to him about. That was the middle of the week. On Thursday night, before the Friday, Kathy disappeared. We know that a Keo student went to the carriage house apartments with her boyfriend and that she also had been confiding in Kathy that she had been abused by Maskell, and Kathy was supporting her and, I guess, counseling her. She had her boyfriend with her, so he was part of the conversation. We are going to keep her name anonymous. I've never said her name out loud. I know who she is. She and I have talked, but we're going to respect her privacy to the end. She told me that they arrived. The nuns invited them to sit down. Russell got up and asked the two of them if they'd like something to drink, and she went into the kitchen. And at that point, Maskell and Neil Magnus, who was the other priest at Keogh, both came into the apartment without knocking. What she told me was that they came in without knocking. 
So I don't want to be misquoted because that's quite different than bursting in. Okay. And I don't know how often they had been over there. Who knows? So I asked her what their demeanor was. And she said, Maskell was furious. Magnus looked dumb. Sister Kathy asked the teenagers to leave, the student and her boyfriend, and they left. And we don't know what happened Thursday night. We do know that the next day, Friday morning of the day Kathy disappeared, Maskell went to this young woman at Keogh and said, if you tell anybody what happened, I will kill your family and your boyfriend. Now, you have to remember that Kathy was no longer at Keogh and Russell was no longer at Keogh. Kathy was at Western High School. Russ was at Rockland Junior High, which was adjacent to the apartments where they live. So this girl was by herself in school with him threatening her with the lives of the people that are most important to her. And she has shared with me that she feels like she was responsible for what happened to Kathy. That's not true, but that I can understand why somebody would feel that way. The next thing we know that day is that Kathy went to school and I guess if I had been threatened the night before, if they were, I don't know if I would have been able to go to school or not, but she did. She was not the kind of person to slack. And a student who was also in the Keepers, Juliana Bertaldi, who's now also my buddy, told us that she was in Kathy's class. And that Friday afternoon, about 1.30, she was talking to her in her classroom and that Kathy shared that she was excited because her sister was going to be married and she was going to be shopping for a gift for her sister's engagement. So that brings us to Friday afternoon. Kathy goes home. Russ goes home. They have dinner. We even know what they had to eat for dinner. And I know somebody's going to ask. It was ham and sweet potatoes. Right before dinner, our friend Sharon Bush comes to drop something off and talk to the nuns for a few minutes. She said, I guess she said it was around maybe a little before five, if I recall correctly. I know one of you guys will correct me if I'm wrong. Anyway, and said everything seemed okay, and she went on her way. So then we have Russell at home. Kathy at home, and Kathy goes out. Now, this part of the timeline is a little bit tricky because we are not sure exactly what time Kathy went out. The banks were open later on Fridays. It's possible she went out around 7. Jerry think, seems to think it was later. Mary Spence, who was also a student at Keogh, is the individual in the keepers who heard yelling in the parking lot and said that she thinks that was about 8.30. And she is the delightful, quirky student who was, quote, spying on Mr. Noon, who was getting ready to go out, where four male teachers from Keogh lived about a block and a half from the carriage house apartments. 
So what we know is that Kathy did her errands. I believe she came back. I believe somebody confronted her in the parking lot at 8.30 because we have a witness that said she was bringing groceries in and out and saw Kathy sitting in her car. We also have someone who said that Kathy followed, waved at someone and followed another car out of the parking lot. And then we have someone who said, I haven't seen these reports, but I've been told they're accurate, that someone reported a woman in the passenger seat of a car going south or North Bend Road trying to get out of the passenger door and somebody pulling her back in. That puts us at later in the evening. During the evening, Russell was home. Russell, at a certain point, I think it was around 10, called our friend Sharon Hamill Bush to ask if she knew where Kathy might be. She was worried. She wanted to know if Sharon had heard from her. Sharon didn't know. She also had a visitor that evening, uh, a friend of Kathy's who was a priest, and this is a priest that is not in any way connected to any of the abuse, the murder, any of it. It was someone that Kathy knew from years ago who was in town in Baltimore visiting a friend, and they were returning from dinner and decided to stop by and see if Kathy was home. Now, I'm sure the police interviewed this guy. I have heard from Kathy and Russ's friend, Pat Gilner, who's also in The Keepers, who is an ex-nun, but she's the one that lived with Russell. What a nice person this guy was. There is no reason for anybody to suspect that he was involved in any of this. And at this point, Russell didn't know anything was wrong. So this priest and friend came to the door. I don't know if they came in or not, but Russ just explained Kathy was out shopping and they just left. So I don't know if they were friends of Russell's or not. But So that should clear up that issue. The next thing we know is that after Sharon didn't know anything, Russell called Jerry. And a lot of people have said, why didn't she call the police? And I guess it doesn't take rocket science to figure out that if the police were involved in this, I wouldn't call the police. I'd call the boyfriend because it's more support and it's two heads are better than one. And if Russ knew what was happening and knew that the police were involved, which I believe she did, there's no way she would have called the police. Like, how do you know who to trust? So I think she called the priest and I believe they were, they had gone to Baltimore to see a movie. Now here's another area where there's a lot of controversy. Pete McKeon, who was Jerry's friend, did not drive to the carriage house from Beltsville. Pete drove to Manresa, which is where Jerry lived in Annapolis. It was a retreat house, and they both drove together up Route 1. They stopped at a diner on Route 1 between Annapolis and Baltimore. They went to, we believe, the 8 o'clock showing of Easy Rider. 
I have a wonderful friend that has worked with us a little bit on this case. His name is Michael Gerlach, and he took the responsibility on his own of going down to the Central Library, looking up the newspaper from that weekend to find out where Easy Rider was playing and what times. And he found out that it was playing at one place in Baltimore. And in those days, friends, movies were like all day long, two, <laughs> four, six, eight, ten. So for Jerry to be back at Annapolis at 1030, they were likely to have gone to the eight o'clock show after dinner. So they head back to Annapolis. As Jerry said, they're sitting in his office and the phone rings and it's Russ. So she's, I don't know where Kathy is. So they get in the car and they drive up to Carriage House. And I believe they got there around 11, between 11 and 1130. And they tried to figure out what to do. Jerry said, let's call the police. So there was a, an officer who came and took a missing persons report shortly after that. I believe he left around one. So he leaves. Nobody has talked about the car or seen the car. There were two ways to get into the parking lot that the nuns used. One was off of Frederick Road. One was off of North Bend Road. The car was found across from their parking lot on North Bend. Attention, friends. Are you ready to embark on a journey into the unknown this Mother's Day? Prepare to dive into the depths of your family's history with MyLifeInABook.com. Each week, MyLifeInABook.com sends intriguing questions, uncovering the thrilling tales of your mom's past and then she can either type her response or use their voice-to-text feature. From daring escapes to nail-biting encounters, her life becomes an epic adventure waiting to be explored. This Mother's Day, give the gift of excitement and intrigue with MyLifeInABook.com. It's a thrilling ride through your mom's life that you won't want to miss. I gave this to my mom last year, and let's just say... I didn't know my mom as well as I thought I did. Check out mylifeinabook.com and use code SHANE at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com and use code SHANE for 10% off today. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. So if you remember in the Keepers where Jerry had me park at the bottom of North Bend, if that car was pulled into the court across from the nun's parking lot, 
and was pulled halfway in, it would not have been sticking out into traffic. It would have been sticking out about as wide as far as the width of a car. And if any cars were parked along parallel to that curb and Jerry and Pete parked on the other side down farther, it is possible they wouldn't have seen it. Or maybe it wasn't there yet. So they go in, they come outside. Now, I understand from Sharon that she has the impression that the priests and Russ drove the distance back to Edmondson Village. I guess Jerry would have to confirm or deny that. But Sharon got the impression from Russell that they had indeed tried to look for her. Russ wouldn't have had a car. Kathy had the car. So they didn't see the car driving back to Edmondson Village, and they may have been in the priest car, all three of them. So arriving back, the two priests go outside, and it's when they are walking up the street, they see the car on the other side of the road. The doors were unlocked. They were not open. They were unlocked. Jerry said he opened the, the driver's side door. And what he saw was the trash bucket tipped over onto the passenger floor. The box of Muley's buns was undisturbed. It still had the rope cord around it. It wasn't mashed. My supposition is that it was next to Kathy on the seat and that if she was pushed over, it's possible it went on the floor. We also, Shane was wise enough to listen to us ask him to enlarge and enhance the picture of that steering wheel. And it really does look like something is twisted in the shape. And we've been told that it may have been tied with string or thread from Kathy's slip. Kathy was very much into symbols. It could be a red herring. It could be a sign from her. It could be a sign from whoever hurt her. We just don't know. So that brings us up to the next day when Sharon said she came over to the apartment. It was early. The priests were still there. She assumed they had stayed all night. The police were there. She said people were everywhere, like standing around in the apartment. Russ was not hysterical. She was not acting like she was not cognizant of what was going on. She was being very matter of fact. Very logical, but Sharon distinctly said, and you'll remember this, that a detective came up to her, took her name, and said to her, while Russ is standing next to her, as like part of the conversation, did anybody at Keogh ever ask you to do something you didn't want to do? And the only thing she could think of was that some boy at a dance, tried to kiss her on the way back from the bathroom, and she didn't know him. And she's, I don't know if that's what they're talking about, but that's what she told him. And that wasn't what they were talking about. So that tells us that the morning after Kathy disappeared, Russ knew that there was something going on at Keogh. Sharon, that was the first she heard of it, but somebody told the police. And he was a detective wearing a trench coat. We would love to know who he was. Right. I don't know where those reports are. And as I've said a million times, at least, the police cannot tell us anything. Anybody was asked the same thing or knows anything about those detectives, please let one of us know. 
around November of 1969, that's when Jane Doe, who we now know is Jean, Jean says that is when Maskell took her to see Kathy's body. And then going at just a few more months ahead, on January 3rd, 1970, that is when Sister Kathy's body was found by two hunters. Gemma, I'll let you explain more about that. Okay. So if you think about what Shane just said, Jean was taken just a few weeks after Kathy disappeared by Maskell to see Sister Kathy's body. And if you also recall in the series, we did some research. I hate this topic, but we needed to do it on the life cycle of maggots. And we found that flies lay their eggs on organic materials. If the weather is warm, the maggots stay on the bodies. When the weather gets cold, the maggots burrow deeper into that organic material, in this case, a body. So for the couple weeks after Kathy disappeared, the weather was warm. It went up into the 60s. So when she saw Kathy's body, there were maggots there, and she was trying to clear them off Kathy's face. The police said that was ridiculous, that it was November, and that there were no maggots there. When Kathy's body was found in January, there were no maggots visible, which is what James Scannell volunteered, that there were no maggots or anything on that body. So he is trying to disprove Jean's memory. However, Gemma and the medical examiner, Werner Spitz, both found that in reading the autopsy that Spitz wrote, the maggots had burrowed into Sister Kathy's esophagus and trachea and so would not have been visible to the naked eye when she was found, but were definitely visible during the autopsy. So that explains that. So who are you going to believe, the police or Gemma and Werner? So we know that there is one newspaper article in the Arbutus Times that you can look up about the two hunters who found Sister Kathy's body in January of 1970. The article has their names. The father is George Eugene Brown and his son, Carl. Carl's last name, I assumed, was Brown. But the story goes that they were hunting small game. And I'm assuming, Shane, does that mean like rabbits and squirrels? Yeah. Okay. In the Hailthorpe area where Sister Kathy was found. It's not a big hunting area, not deer and foxes there. It's definitely small game. Interestingly enough, those two hunters were from Middle River. They were not from Lansdowne or Hailthorpe. So it's interesting to me about why they would be all the way across on the other side of Baltimore County hunting small game. When they found Kathy's body, they walked to a nearby house. Of course, in 1969, there were no cell phones. Did you guys know that? Okay, some of you are really young. Shane, did you know that? I did. Okay. And they walked to a house. They called 911. The dispatcher contacted the officer that was on patrol in the neighborhood. His name was Raymond 
horsey. He has now moved to another country, so it's not possible for us to interview him. I don't even know if he's still living, but he called in the report and it went to Lieutenant James Scannell. Now, Scannell is in the keepers. I was not aware of some of the accusations against him when I met him. All of that happened afterwards. Otherwise, I'll be honest with you, I don't know if I could have done what I did. And I feel badly for his family because I'm sure everybody's struggling with what he did or didn't do. And he died in November of 2016, not long after we filmed that episode. Anyway, he was working that day. Lieutenants did not work on Saturdays. They rotated. So what a coincidence that he's working on the day that Kathy is found and that he is the first officer in authority on the scene. We also know, and this is all factual, that Scannell and Maskell often went out from a marina in Middle River on Maskell's boat. Some young women were taken out on that boat. It's not impossible that they may have known these hunters. I would really like to talk to the son. Now, the son, I found, does not have the same last name, and you won't believe how I found out. If you go back and listen to the episode that Shane and I did with wonderful journalist, friend, reporter, Bob Erlinson, Bob is almost talking to himself about names he had written down. And at one point, He says, now, let's see, what are these names? George Eugene Brown and Carl Michael Berkheimer. And I didn't think anything about it until I thought about the hunters and knew that the son's name was Carl. So I'm not sure of the spelling of the last name, Berkheimer, because it was not in the paper. He was not a little kid. His father is in his 80s. So Berkheimer could be 30s, 40s, 50s. I cannot find anybody who ever lived in Maryland by the name of Carl Michael Berkheimer. Now, I don't think this is going to turn into a box girl episode, everybody. (laughs) I know how you feel about that. That was crazy. And Stephanie Ann, if you're listening, we love you because of your help. But if anybody has the resources and can put me in touch with Carl Berkheimer, I would so appreciate it. Or if Carl is listening to this, if he could please get in touch with the Shanester. This is the story of the one. 
As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.